how you're going to analyze 3,000 investment opportunity. You need either a lot of people or a lot of data. And what we do is that we filter very quickly if one of those opportunities does not fit the criteria that I described above. So immediately when we receive one of those opportunities, our team put the address into our database and we come back with a two minutes result, which is normally a binary result to say yes or no. Yes, that is growth. And again, growth mainly on those three variables that I mentioned if you're looking into a residential rental sector. And no, because there is no growth. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we welcome the founder and managing principal at AIC Capital, Ricardo Uti, to the show. Based in Miami, Florida, AIC Capital is a research-based, data-driven alternative investment platform. The firm specializes in capital allocation and private real estate on behalf of funds, institutions, family offices, and high-net-worth individuals. Ricardo has over 20 years of wealth management and real estate investment experience. Throughout a career with Citigroup, Ricardo held positions of Head of Strategy and Business Development at City Offshore Wealth Management in Miami, Head of Marketing and Sales Strategy in Tokyo, and the Senior Position at City Ventures in Singapore. In today's episode, we dive into the backbone of AIC Capital's strategy, their data and market research tool that has been developed and perfected over years of data sourcing and data management. We discuss how the company manages to filter over 3,000 opportunities that hit their desk every year, and we hear about the first steps that Ricardo took when deciding to leave Cedar Group to prepare him for the next chapter in his career. As a friendly reminder, please keep in mind that anything discussed herein is for conversational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice on behalf of Ricardo or AIC Capital. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Accent State. Without further ado, here is today's guest, Ricardo Uti. Ricardo, welcome to Accent State. How are you? Very, very good, Jorge. Thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure speaking again. Thank you. Yes, I'm very excited. There's a lot to talk about. I've learned a lot about what your group is doing over conversations that we've had across the past couple of months, and I'm very excited to share it here today. Sounds good. So, Ricardo, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how AIC Capital comes to be? Yes, sure. My pleasure. So, I, I um, Ricardo here have 20 plus years of uh, wealth and investment management experience. I am Brazilian based or Brazilian born in uh, Japanese blood, started my career in Brazil, spent a couple of years and clearly I knew from the beginning that I want an international career. So I moved to the US, spent a few years here and I was lucky enough to uh, have the opportunity to move to the other side of the world in, in Asia. So I spent four and a half years in Tokyo, Japan, and two and a half years in, in Singapore. And then uh, for personal reasons, we decided to relocate back to the U.S. So currently here in, uh, in based in, uh, in Miami, but uh, all of these 20 plus years, always working on the wealth management and investment management side of the business. Actually, in Singapore, I spent a couple of years on the venture capital side. 
I work at City Ventures, pretty much leading the uh, venture capital investing for City in Asia. Of course, City is a bank, so it was a proprietary evergreen fund, not necessarily a fund that we raise from investors or from our clients, but it was an internal proprietary capital uh, to uh, drive innovations and and stay focused on what's going on within the fintech financial sector industry. So that's when I start getting more involved into the alternative investment side of the business. And that's the reason why, one of the reasons why AIC Capital was actually formed. So that was your first look into real estate? Yes. So interestingly, what happened to real estate was... uh, that when I spent these 20 years inside the bank, we had a high, ultra high net worth uh, investors that will come to us and say, hey, I like real estate and I know you have all this product A, product B, mainly stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, but how about real estate? And at that time, and by and large, most of the banks too, they lack the product offering when, when it comes to alternative investment, namely real estate, venture capital, private equity. Real estate specifically, it's an asset class that they like for various reasons. And the bank, and uh, they lack that kind of services. So when I moved back from Singapore to the U.S., I had a Japanese client who called me with a provocation question, actually inviting me to quit City City Group and uh, open up a company to help uh, him uh, allocate capital into real estate here in the U.S. Japan, as you know, it's a negative interest rate economy that goes without saying that the bonds market nearly doesn't exist as a, from an attractive perspective. Returns are very low. The economy is shrinking, so it makes a lot of sense for an investor to uh, to start diversifying outside uh, Japan. But of course, it's not for every investor. You need to have some sort of size and expertise and so on. Uh, This one is a very large single-family company that uh, uh, they had the means, but they didn't have the access and kind of the data and the intelligence to make uh, best capital location decisions. At that time, it was like 20 years, the same company, very glad to have the global experience. I felt that was ready for this next challenge. And of course, I didn't want to uh, open a company and have one single client, right? So I reached out to a couple of other family offices, uh, one multifamily office here based in Miami and another single family in Singapore. We all agreed that there was kind of a need because I already knew that those clients, they want to allocate care, but they don't have the access to or the, the opportunities. And the companies named family offices, normally uh, they lack the resources, right? Because they're either experienced on the stock markets, on the bond markets, but when it comes to alternatives, as I alluded to, they tend to do not have the experience or the resources for that. So that's what we position ourselves from the beginning we started as a buy side and a capital locator supporting those family offices and high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals and institutions to allocate capital into real estate. Okay. Okay. That's a very interesting way to kick about a 
a real estate investment platform. And so what did you do then? It was essentially you had the investors, you had the capital that needed to be allocated. What was your next step? I guess you had to establish a strategy, start sourcing opportunities. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Actually, from that moment when I decided to do it, of course, I just simply did not quit my job and, and started, right? I spent actually 14, 15 months building the platform. When we knew we would start with real estate because that was the highest demand from our clients. I went back to my school. I, I graduated from Chicago Booth and I knew they, were, they had a real estate investment course. So I bit, went back to school and I spent full week with one uh, professor that's uh, almost a guru in this uh, real estate investment. Uh, he wrote uh, many books and does a lot of work for large uh, institutional investors besides being a professor. One of the things that uh, struck me the most from this week was that the professor uh, was sharing his his knowledge and and the knowledge that perhaps is is not very known for many, and and certainly was not known for me, and and now it's very clear. He he, uh, he was saying that real estate is one of the largest asset classes in the world, right? Here in the U.S., it's $36 trillion dollars. Historically and empirically, it has performed better than the broad stock markets uh, as well as uh, bonds market, but yet it's one of the most inefficient sectors. So I was sitting there and saying, wow, the largest, better performance and inefficient. This is the place I should be because inefficiencies and efficiencies, when you have a market or a business that's very efficient, it's very hard to create value, right? Or extract value. When you have a business that has a huge potential and huge market to grow and is inefficient, I actually like it. I like it because I see it as an opportunity to invest and to make it grow. And the reason mainly why it's inefficient relative to the stock market is data. And when you buy and sell stock, for example, the market means price automatically, and they know immediately who's buying, who is selling, and it's kind of online, right, through those stock market uh, platforms. However, when you buy and selling a real estate, it's very private. Right, it's Jorge selling to Ricardo. Is Ricardo buying by from Group A? Is Blackstone buying from Carlyle, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Of course, it's becoming public, but it's it's not a online single platform that goes and captures all of that, especially in an online uh, basis. So what we have done is that we downloaded, we bought a lot of data, and we want to be focused on eliminating those inefficiencies and creating value. Uh, for our clients in order to make best capital locations decisions. So today we have a, a database with more than 50 variables across every single address in the United States. We have other sources of data that we use to triangulate. We have research reports that uh, we read, we stay attuned uh, just to ensure which sectors, cities that we want to allocate capital. But the data and this research is actually the the backbone of why and what we do and how we allocate capital. I think many more details that we put together, but I think, and even the definition of our organization, 
AIC Caps is a research-based and data-driven investment platform. And we, we need to stay, to stay true to our definition. But if you give a step back and think about clients reaching out to us and say, please quit your job, set up this company, and help us allocate capital, we needed to come up with something that was differentiated and we need to come up with something that was intelligent enough for helping them to make best capital allocation decisions, which is actually the unmet need that they had. That was a great overview, Ricardo. Thank you for that. There's a few points that I'd like to go back and, and touch on. It's a very interesting point you make on how inefficient real estate is and because of how tough it is to access data, which even today, it's that's something that has increased dramatically over the last 10, 20 years, and it will keep increasing, but it is still very inefficient. And as you mentioned, that's how you're able to find mispricings because in, in the stock market, you won't find those. I mean, you, you will find stocks that are overvalued or undervalued, but you won't really find mispricings or opportunities that you need to pounce on quickly before somebody else gets there. But in real estate, you can still see a lot of that. And so you noticed that and you created a data-driven platform to recognize opportunities within the market. That is correct. And, 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 and thanks for asking this question because I think it's important for your audience to know and just to be clear here, it, it's not that uh, there is no data, right? There's a lot of company, especially the large ones, that really leverage uh, data. And as my professor said, it's inefficient, but it's improving, right? And it has improved, as you alluded to, Jorge, significantly in the past uh, a few years. But we live in a information age, right? And data is like the new oil of this economy. So any company that's not leveraging data is just missing. If you look at valuations in the stock markets, all the tech companies and so are, are mainly technology data-driven platforms, right? Like Google and Facebook and, and et cetera. So I think th that's one thing. The second thing I say, the, the inefficiencies in some of the data that are, that's available, let's make a parallel with the REITs market, like the public trade real estate uh, investment trust. This is kind of almost a online platform that um, there is information. You can see it online and in the pricification of those assets or products, it's kind of immediate and online. And today, when there is always this volatility, you do see opportunities to come in and to sell and so on. So I'll give you an example, I was just analyzing the REITs by sectors and, and we still see values, for example, in apartments and mortgage trusts and things like that, because we're still under kind of coming out of a, a major economic downturn. There's still a lot of uncertainty, and uncertainty is the enemy of, of investments, right? So a lot of investors stay on the sideline, and, and what's happening in these sectors that we, we like is that it's undervalued, underpriced, because if you see, for example, this is our view, okay, uh, a 10-20% negative return, uh, I think, year-to-date on the apartment sector, yes, it is true that it's still 
unknown of what's going to happen once the government's stimulus uh, ended and how and when this unemployment rate will start kicking back up. But in general, if you know what are the specific strategies and where you want to invest and what's the unemployment rate of that particular market and so on, I think there is more upsides than what the market is pricing right now. Right on the mortgage side, yeah, I think that's that's harder than the apartment sectors because I think there's an expectation that the uh, the defaults it will start now, especially in sectors such as retail and hospitalities that have been uh, hit the hardest. So yeah, for retail investors, I, I agree, it's hard to uh, to look into all the I don't know how many twenty thirty uh, REITs, uh, the mortgage trust REITs, and find which one is the best because they're like down 20, 20 something percent. But if you know, uh, then if you know their products and so on, I think there's some some opportunities there. And, and that's by and large because of data, right? But what we're talking about here, and mainly 99% of our location to not say 100%, is in the private market. And in the private market, there are data as well. It is improving, but it's not as much in online as it is on the on the REITs uh, public traded space. Mm-hmm. You're trading, you're dealing directly with the owners of the assets, right? That's right. Yeah. So, Ricardo, I wanted to hear a little bit more about this platform that you have developed, which you call the backbone of your business and, and what you do. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of variables go into it and why it's such a powerful tool for you? Yeah, certainly. So I think the first thing is is like the top down, right? Which is what we call this research base. As a capital locator, and because of real estate is so huge, right? As we said, $36 trillion, there is flavor for everyone, right? Hospitalities like hotels, retail, shopping malls, student housing, senior housing, workforce housing, data center, office buildings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So our clients, in general, they're looking for two things. They're looking for diversification and capital preservation. And they want to diversify away from stock market, mainly because they also want to reduce volatility in their portfolio. Institutional investors are very similar in terms of their needs. So what we wanted to do, it's an allocation that's based on this diversification in, in, in reduction of, of volatility. So that led us to, one, number one, stay away from the REITs, the public trade REITs, because the volatility there is super high. And number two, we stay away from the sectors that are very recession, non-resilient, such as hospitality, right? You take a hotel, I mean, when there is a downturn, and it, this is empirical, is the first one to go down, and the last one to come back up. Right, you returns when in normal middle cycle you can get double digits cash on cash. But I always challenge investors say, yeah, but you need to look into a long term horizons, five ten years, perhaps fifteen to twenty years, because whenever you hold it for five to ten years, and when you're selling it, you sell it to somebody that's gonna look into it as uh, five to ten years as well. So, and when the downturn comes. One thing we can say for sure is that in the U.S., it's very cyclical, right, the market. And in average, a cycle lasts 10 years. 
So if you're holding and thinking about 15 years and so, meaning the five to 10 years that you're holding, the five, 10 years that the next group that's going to buy from you is holding, one thing for sure is going to happen. It's another downturn, right? So you cannot only look. And when you look all these projections, nobody ever put in a projection, hey, a downturn will come here in year five and then I'll lose cash flow. I mean, that, that doesn't exist. You tell me, I've never seen any operator that, that does that. So, but if we know that that will happen almost for sure, then there's something wrong, right? In terms of price. price. So that's why we, we, we stay away from that. We, we decide to allocate into uh, the sectors that are more what we call recession resilient. And that's based on research, that's based on data. We look at historicals, we compare, and so on. I'm not saying that's the right strategy. I'm not saying that's the only strategy. That's the strategy based on our clients' needs and our investors' needs, right? The second thing was this notion of data, right? And data, as I mentioned, is this new oil uh, of this information-aged economy. So data for us have done two things. One, we created a statistical qualitative and quantitative model to define where are the best cities to invest based on those sectors that our research has shown that we want to invest. So we came up with about 10 to 15 cities, or it's called here MSAs. And those are the ones that were shown in our model that were kind of growing faster, much faster than the average in the US. And why is that important? Because it's what we say, it's the, it's the drivers of real estate demand, right? If there is no growth, and again, if you're thinking long-term, like 10, 15, 20 years, and you're buying an asset that's performing well, but the demand for the assets is diminishing, you might have an issue 5, 10, for, uh, 20 years down the line. Um, so this demand, it's this model uh, serve us to define those cities, but the second aspect of it was that it enabled us within those cities to identify the neighborhoods that are growing sometimes even faster than those fastest growing cities. And why is that important? You take the Austin where you are, for example. Austin is one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S., but it doesn't mean that every single neighborhood is growing. Some neighborhoods actually is not growing in some neighborhoods is growing faster than Austin. We want to be in those neighborhoods that are growing faster than Austin, right? And we have a database of more than 50 variables that enable us to identify which neighborhoods are those in what we call the path to growth neighborhoods. Okay, that's very interesting. So you you first started by identifying which products you wanted to be in, which asset classes, and then you said, okay, geographically, which MSAs, and then within those MSAs, which specific neighborhoods. And obviously, behind every layer of those layers, there's a lot of variables that go into, there's a lot that goes into which city. I'm sure it's not just population growth, that could be the main driver, but there's other things that go into it. Similarly with with neighborhood, there's a lot of other factors, demographics, etc. Yeah, so, it's 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 about like 50 plus variables. I mean, depending on the sectors that you are, there are variables that are more, of course, uh, key and important, and that's what we call the the drivers of real estate demand. For example, if you are 
on the residential rental slash multifamily, single family sectors, what you want is basically three things, right? You, you want you want job growth, right? Because that will lead into population growth, not the other way around. Population growth will lead into rental growth and home price appreciation. And again, those are the key drivers of demand for that residential rental. And that's what it's, it's a key component of the model to identify the best opportunities uh, for us. I think it's important to mention here that one thing that the data and this scientific kind of approach has helped us is that we, we have a framework, right? What we created was a framework for investing. And with those cities and those sectors defined, we went out to the markets and we started creating relationships with the brokers, the property managers, the developers. Those are the owners of real estate and those are the sellers of real estate. And they feed us with approximately 3,000 investment opportunities in a given year. But how are you going to analyze 3,000 investment opportunities? You need either a lot of people or a lot of data. And what we do is that we filter very quickly if one of those opportunities does not fit the criteria that I described above. So immediately when we receive one of those opportunities, our team put the address into our database and we come back with a two minutes result, which is normally a binary result to say yes or no. Yes, that is growth. And again, growth mainly on those three variables that I mentioned if you're looking into a residential rental uh, sector. And no, because there is no growth, right? And if the, if it is yes, and then our underwriting will spend more time looking into valuations, looking into other components such as unemployment rate, such as per capita income growth, such as home value price appreciation, uh, historically, just to determine if it is a great location and a great investment. And out of these 3,000 investment opportunity, we make about five to 10 uh, investment in a given year. So it's about less than 0.5% of what we see we actually ended up investing. And that enables us to be very picky, right? very selective and choose an opportunity that we believe to be really great from a risk-adjusted basis. Of course. So let's use a, a particular example. How about the, the project in, in Dallas in which we recently invested with you on and with which both of us are very excited about? Walk us through the process of how this opportunity arrived at your desk and then from there to where we are now. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a, it's a good example. It's a it's an investment that we are very excited. By the way, we haven't closed it. We are under contract, but closing is, is going to be coming soon. Thank you, Jorge, you yourself, your family, uh, our own capital. We're all uh, investing into this alongside uh, our family offices as well. So first, it is, I mean, just to go top down, right? It, it is a, a multifamily workforce, what we call class B minus property. So as I mentioned, it is aligned to our segment allocation or segment selection because it's, it's a recession resilient asset. And we look into the numbers and they have done well, relatively speaking, 
during this downturn as well, including COVID and, and this high unemployment rate. So it's 116 units in Dallas, and that's the second component of it. Dallas is one of the top 10 cities that we invest and is located on uh, the southern part of Dallas and is in one of the neighborhoods that pass all the criteria in one of the neighborhoods that we call path to growth. Perhaps it's not a neighborhood that our friends will live, right? Because it's, as I mentioned, a workforce uh, neighborhood. It's for the people who live and work around there, very close to like the distribution uh, center um, that's there. Uh, it's growing and evolving the sounder part of, of Dallas. And what we like about it is the fact that the ownership has owned the asset for the past 27 years, so almost 30 years. That's very, very, very difficult to find. Out of these 3,000 investment opportunities that we see, I, I can easily say that, I mean, less than 1% or 1% that you find an asset that belongs to the same group for that many years. And it's a very professional group. They have managed it very nice and there's no deferred maintenance. We got the uh, property inspection report and amazingly, they, they didn't identify anything like that you need to do in the next uh, 60 to 90 days, which is also very uh, unusual and common. Even when we buy uh, newer assets, there's always something that you need to do, especially to uh, avoid uh, hazard risks and things like that. So we're very pleased with that. And most importantly, it's the upside opportunities, right? Because imagine a group that owns it for 27 years and they were telling us the first refi or refinancing that they've done after they acquired the asset, they got 100% of their capital back. From that point onwards, all the cash on cash, all the return became infinite, right? Because imagine you have all your capital back and you own an asset, so you get a infinite cash on cash return. And they have refinanced a couple more times and, and they have done so well with it. And they're so happy to sell right now because the older uh, partner is 94 years old and, and they're done, right? They built a large portfolio in Texas, in central Texas, that is this one and one more to sell. And after that, they'll be done. So I think because of that, rents are about 20 to 30% below uh, market. They have not spent a significant amount of capital expenditure in the property because, as I said, they just maintained it well and kept it close to 100% historically because the returns were good. They did not need to spend all of this capex because the returns was, were, were already there. You don't need to run the risk of doing so. And things such as utilities, they still pay for it. Right, they in the past it was common to have landlords paying for water, even sometimes electricity. Today it's nearly unheard of, right? I mean, a tenant knows that when they're renting someplace, they need to pay for water and electricity and trash and things like that. So, I think there's an, a huge upside opportunity here as well to capture, recapture that uh, utility charge from tenants and, and bring rents. I would say not to the market, but even closer to it, to still stay below and manage occupancy to remain high. And by doing that, you raise revenue, you raise NOI, and consequently raise the value of the property and in turn improve total return. 
So that's what we're super exciting. In summary, it's a, it's a, it's a great sector. Uh, have performed well in the past uh, downturn recessions. Uh, is in the city that's growing very fast. Is in a neighborhood that's in the path to growth. High quality asset, no deferred maintenance, with a huge upside opportunities uh, for us. And you think about it, an investment, and that comes back our investment background, right? Uh, my partner and I spending 20, 30 years in, in this industry. It's all it all boils down to managing risk right? Risk management. And if you think about it, making this decision or buying an asset that is resilient to economic downturn, that we are looking into the P&Ls and rent rows uh, historically and seeing how they perform and has been performing in this downturn that we're facing. And it's quite impressive how well is th- they're doing. So what could go wrong? I mean, <laughs> how can we lose money by buying an asset is just by doing something really stupid, really, really bad, right? Potentially, we might not be able to raise the rents as much as, as we plan to, and perhaps that's the main risk, right? But as my professor said, and was another takeaway, when you're measuring risk on real estate investments, it's 90% the risk of receiving a return that's lower than you plan, as opposed to the risk of losing your capital. If you're prudent in terms of your capital stack, the amount of leverage, if you're prudent in doing your homework in terms of being the sector, being the city and the neighborhood and high quality asset, it's very, very hard to predict anything in terms of losing your capital, uh, using losing your investment there. And in this particular case, the characteristics that make it a sound and less risky investment from our standpoint is, for instance, that where the level at which the rents are right now, which is with such a high gap between market level and where they currently are, which means that, and you have occupancy at what, 98, 100%. Yeah. And so these are residents that they're really are not going to go any, I mean, at current levels, there's not really much risk of occupancy dropping, right? That risk comes into play once you start increasing rents, but obviously we see a lot of room to grow there. And obviously out of the 3,000 deals that hit your desk, very, very few of them have that opportunity of, of upside. So first, there's a lot of work that goes into identifying the opportunity, but once you identified it, then a whole other set of work starts right now. It's when you have to fly to Dallas, visit the property, meet with different property managers, walk the units, get some estimates for all kinds of stuff. And that's a whole other set of work, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's the other aspect of our platform, right? We we are not a operator or estate, right? We are by and large a capital allocator. So if you're a family office or investor, um, listening, yeah, keen to reach out and, and discuss your, your investment needs. But if you're a developer or an operator, very keen to meet you as well, because our model is that we're going to partner with you, right? We're going to invest if it's a development project, if you're a property manager or operator, we might use your services when we buy an asset there. And what we've do to answer your question, what we've done or what we're doing in this particular case, but what we have done 100% on all the investments we made is that we run an RFP process to select the best property manager that's suitable 
and has the track record, the scale, and the experience to manage an asset like this. And they would do it for sure better if we had our own property management team, because as I said, uh, it's companies normally they are doing that for the past 10, 20 years. In this case, we have selected a group, I will not mention their name here, but uh, they manage currently 18,000 units uh, in the central Texas, mainly in Dallas. So they're, they're huge. They uh, manage 10 properties within the four miles radius close to this property. So they have physical presence and scale and experience. They have done similar value-add, value creation work that we're going to do here. We walk through their properties and the units that they've done. We have come up with a business plan in terms of what we want to do with the exterior uh, uplift of this property, what we're going to do in terms of unit upgrades. We have a budget. We met with their GC. They have done the work. They have a budget. They have a, a playbook, essentially, to just come hit the ground running and, and start immediately. So yeah, that work has been done and is kind of ready to start the day we, we acquire, the day after the closing. And I think to your point, to ask your question in terms of the risk is in terms of raising rents above and beyond the mean of these existing tenants or new tenants. We are very aware of that. I think that mainly is the key risk that we're seeing here. But as I said, we the way how we look at and the uh, and we analyze the rent comps, we believe we are 20 30 percent below market. And when you start investing capital capex into the property and improving uh, the curb appeal, improving the units and the service, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you can then justify this, this increase, right? The current turnover ratio of the property is 41 percent. Uh, a little bit below the average. To your point, they tend to stay. There are long-term tenants, especially some seniors that live there for many, many years. We are very aware that some of them will decide to leave and look for other opportunities or other places to live. But when they look around and start looking at, at rates, they will see that they're paying below markets. So they will either go to a place that is similar or below. They will not be able to look for a place that is similar or better in terms of quality, in terms of location, than what they have right now. So they either will decide to pay like 5% higher rates or 10% higher uh, rent or go to somewhere else. And going to somewhere else, there's also a, a switching cost, right? It's, uh, it's a burden. Uh, I hate moving. I like going to a different place, meeting different people, but I hate the process of moving. And it's a process, right? Changing address and moving companies and so on. So it's a huge cost. So we believe that about 20, 30% or more of the tenants will stay. Yeah. And another interesting point to make is that you have obviously your data your investment platform that throws at you, like you said, a, a binary go or no go decision, and then you start to look into it. But then at the end of the day, you're basing your decisions on practical terms and what you see out there in the, in the market and the asset itself. For example, and the point I'm trying to make is what got us the most excited about the investment opportunity, because we obviously, when considering the investment, we did of research and compared it to other opportunities that we evaluate. 
and used our, our strategy to make a determination. And what excited us the most was the fact that the assumptions that we were making could be validated by what was already in the market. And what I mean is there's a, a property right next to it that was yeah. managed by the same group that's very, very similar, that went through very similar renovation that's less than a mile away. It's actually very close by. And essentially, a look into the future on what you can do, right? It's because it's right here. It's already been done. And then furthermore, when because I, I walked the property with you, I met the property manager, and we asked the property manager that was there, the, the leasing lady, and I asked her, so you've already renovated only five units, and then those renovated, which the renovation, by the way, was basically just changing the countertops. You're already achieving rents that are $150 to $200 above what the other units are renting for. And you have a wait list for the yeah. so-called renovated units. So to us, that was what really got us comfortable with, with yeah. the investment. The fact it, that you're, you're already seeing it happen, right? You don't have to imagine it. Right. That's absolutely right. And, and by the way, you've seen one that there are a couple of other examples that I've seen as well that's very similar. So it's not only one example, it's it's more examples. And by the way, yes, you write about that waiting list and the fact that she also mentioned, the property manager, that a lot of existing tenants are looking forward to it, right? They they want to go to the new renovated units and, and not willing, willing to, uh, to pay this extra yeah, because exactly. they like the location, they work uh, nearby. And as I mentioned, they do their homework as well, right? They go and they shop around. They say, what is available in the market? And, and how can I get this same amount of rent for the same quality? And I think they came to a realization that uh, they're better off staying. And I think that's ultimately our plan for this investment. And if you agree with me that that's the biggest risk, right? Because it's a property that's stabilized and the risk is not achieving your plans. Again, as I mentioned, you're still going to get a, a decent return, perhaps not as much as we anticipated, but we're going to still get the return. And, and for us, the risk of losing money here is really, really low. Not to say zero, there's always risk for everything, but uh, it's low uh, given the amount of leverage, the amount of experience that we have and the property yeah. management have, given the historic performance of this asset, given the drivers of real estate demand and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's all there. And that's what you focus on, right? You focus on on the downside. You've mentioned your number one investment rule is to not lose money. And you do that by stressing and overanalyzing over the downside and let the upside take care of itself, right? As as long as you, you do that. And so are there any particular metrics or characteristics that we haven't discussed that you look at in that process of overanalyzing and obsessing over potential downsides? I think we covered it all, but I think that it's important to also mention that when we look at our proprietary data, we 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 we, we are in the underwriting, underwriting process. We, we use other sources of data just to triangulate, um, just to make sure that we have accurate information, right? So those, there's, plenty of new proprietary 
data source providers that have decent information, uh, not necessarily 100% accurate, but it's a great source of information to triangulate against our uh, proprietary information. Then we do all this walk through uh, in the neighborhood and seeing similar projects to validate as well. And that is by and large, I mean, most when, when you have that framework that you're selecting from top down and then you, from a bottoms up going to this nitty gritty detail of, of data, I think you're pretty much cover, right? And I think there is also this notion of the exit because at the end of the day, you could hold the asset, you can get the cash flow, you can raise the rent, but um, in order for the investment to be realized, you need to exit, right? And that goes back again to being a sector that we believe that this allocation of capital slash liquidity will either remain as is or will increase. Is my view, is our AIC capital view that the allocation of capital going into restate and going to these recession resilient sectors will increase? And with the excess liquidity, you know what's happening on the stock market, for example. Valuations will go up, cap rates will compress. And if that happens, then we'll, we'll have a successful exit. And it's important to mention that in our underwriting, we do not, although we believe that the cap compression will happen, we don't use cap compression in our models, whereby we are buying in into a cap and we are exiting in a higher cap than we are buying actually. So of course, when time comes to exit, we've ended up exiting on a lower cap that we are anticipating. I mean, we're better off and investors will be happy. But I think it's important to mention that as well, the aspect of the exit and the liquidity and cap rates when we are analyzing the asset or the investment. So Ricardo, where does AIC Capital go from here? How does the company grow and scale now that you have all these pieces in place? Yeah, I think big back on my point in terms of increasing capital allocation, just to add why we see in that way, if you look at the stock market, our investors, right, uh, family offices, ultra high net worth individuals, they, they are all happy. They're making a lot of money in the stock market, but they're skeptical. They're skeptical and thinking that a bubble is being created and the bubble, you know, a bubble burst. People don't believe they have, how come a company could be worth $2 trillion? Why, how can a company that produces zero cash flow be worth $700 billion, right? So they're diversifying away. And I lived four and a half years in, in Japan and I know what it's like to be in a zero interest rate environment. Bonds market nearly doesn't exist. So all of this money that are in these traditional sectors will migrate to where? To alternative investments such as real estate. And with low interest rate, let's call it treasury 10 years uh, yield at 1%. Today is a little bit below, but let's call it that level. And a 5% average cap rate, you still have a 4% risk premium that in today's low interest rate environment is very, very attractive, right? And especially the low cost of leverage that 5% or 5% cap, you improve uh, returns. That's one side. The second side is the capital that are that is in real estate right now. They will migrate more towards those sectors that we favor. Right. So name it one, for example, office buildings. This used to be, perhaps it still is, but used to be the main institutional favorite asset class. 
Uh, you have all of these REITs, patient funds, insurance, endowment funds. Uh, they Their largest allocation uh, sector by sector is by far office. But everybody's skeptical, right? We, we don't know. I'm not saying the office building will not exist. There's no need for office. I'm saying that with COVID, uh, the remote working from home, it's here to stay and it's going to increase. And all of these companies are evaluating, reevaluating their needs for real estate. So the demand there, the drives or demand there, it's, it's certainly challenged. So people who have invested in hospitality has lost their shirt or retail, and they'll be more skeptical and they'll be migrating towards sectors that are more, quote unquote, safe. So that excess of capital coming into those sectors will definitely improve uh, valuation and, and compress cap. So what does that mean for us to answer your question? We want to be more aggressive. I think when we uh, started the company a few years back, we knew that we were late in the cycle. So we kind of stayed away from high risk projects such as development. When the downturn came, we then decided to start making those allocations. Uh, we have closed uh, late last year our first uh, development uh, opportunity. We are looking to uh, another one, as you know, uh, most probably will be closing in the next month or so. Now and now we're taking a little bit more risk than buying only a stabilized, safe asset. We're taking development risk because we believe that if history repeats itself, we will have another 10-year cycle upwards. It's going to be a slow recovery, but it's going to be a way up recovery whereby is the best moment now to make those capital locations decisions and take more risk within the next uh, two to three years. So that's what we've been doing. Um, we have uh, a huge uh, need, a huge demand for our investors. They, they understand our view, they support our decisions. It's just hard to find the best one. And we, we're not in a rush. We don't need to. We're not these traditional funds that we raise 100, 200, $1 billion, and they need to run to deploy this capital because you have a two, three years uh, investment period and your investors is paying you the management fees or they expect you to invest. We're not that. We we are capital locators. They tell us, uh, I want to allocate X million dollars and, and that's the checks that we have. And, and if we don't have the opportunity, we simply don't allocate, right? Because making a better decision here and losing your reputation, I mean, it's it's much more worse than making like waiting and and making the best decisions uh and as we mentioned trust you gain every interaction right and and i think we're here for the long term thinking about patiently doing the best that we can in terms of making those decisions uh this capital locations decisions so that's what it is. We, we think, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's that's AIC Cap. We continue to grow. We have a base in Singapore, based in, in Brazil, and here in the US. We're expanding as a team, but in, in we also want to expand our database and our data intelligence to always keep improving and, and trying to uh, evolve as an organization. Yeah. Well, you certainly did answer my question, and that's a, a very exciting future for AIC Capital. So it should be hopefully good years ahead based on, and and again, based on the focus on the fundamentals that you have, which is very, very clear from hearing you convey your strategy. Ricardo, are you ready for our fire round? Yes. Okay, let's do it. I guess so. What's uh-huh. the, the book that has had the most profound impact on your life? 
Oh my God, it's hard to choose one. I read so many books, especially when I was in this period of building the company. And those books have been so important in terms of creating our path. And when I look back and see what we have built and, and how we're growing, I'm, I'm so grateful for all of that. Uh, I'll give a credit to, to my professor. He wrote this, he doesn't call it a book because it's a lot of uh, memorandum and, and et cetera, but it's the Guide to Real Estate Investment by Professor Joseph Pagliari. I mean, it's a large book, but it's a lot of information there just to give credits to him. So grateful for all the books and for all the learnings that I that I got. Okay. Well, thank you for that answer because I'll be sure to pick up that book. I'll add those to the show notes as well. What's the single most important skill set to have as a real estate investor? Oh, boy. That's a difficult one. I, I would say I see many companies, especially investment companies, including the one that I used to work for 20 years. And I still see that many family offices, institutional investors that do invest in real estate. And I think one key characteristics that I see is that they tend to read data, they tend to read research report, and, and, and they're very smart. They went to good schools, they get good salaries and so on. But when you really want to be a better real estate investor, you need to have both your feet in the industry, right? You need to own assets. You need to be there. You need to be talking to property managers like what me and you have done. We need to talk to owners. We need to talk to fund managers such as Blackstone, Starwoods, and so on. And I mean, to the biggest ones, to the smallest ones, uh, you need to be there in the market besides reading data and research report and investing your own money as well, because then you have skin in the game and you feel the pain, right? And you need to be 100% aligned to your investors. You put in your money where your mouth is. I think that, I think what I see, the biggest gap, you see a lot of smart people with a lot of access to a lot of research, data, and so on. But if most of them are what I call, they stay in the air condition, right? They stay there in their desk, in their office, they're reading, they're picking up the phone, but they're not doing what we, we like to do. Uh, and I love doing that, by the way, as well. I love yeah. traveling and going to those cities and neighborhoods. I mean, you discover so much. You meet so many smart people with a lot of experience that you get to learn every day. Every day is a new learning. That's a fantastic answer, and I could not agree more. So thank you for that. What is a real estate trend that you're paying attention to? Yes, uh, there's so many trends. Let me give you two. One, which is part of our model as well, we're big, uh, and I almost mentioned that book as well in terms of demographics. I'm not a demographer, but I do 100% agree what the book say, that any business that ignores demographics, they're just making a huge mistake, right? And they, they give plenty of examples. Uh, which, to which our business, that? I'll give you, I don't know the name exactly <laughs> okay. uh, on top of my mind, but I'll, I'll give you the detail. But the, in U.S., there's two large cohorts, right? Uh, baby boomers and, and, and millennials. The largest cohort in U.S. history, baby boomers, is shrinking because in the age that some are, 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 are passing away and the millennials is still growing because the immigration from other countries, especially this working age. Uh, they're all different. They have different ways of consuming information and making decisions, different sizes of 
pockets in terms of investments. So it's very important when you buy something, uh, especially in these neighborhoods and cities and the assets that you're buying, you really need to know who are your clients and what are their kind of uh, needs. And if you're buying, for example, a senior housing into a neighborhood that the baby boomers are moving out, then you're going to have a problem, right? So trends like this is important. I think the other trend is is what has happened with COVID, right? This pandemic, it has uh, taught us a lot of lessons. We actually wrote a research report on this last year that COVID was the major catalyst for all the real estate trends that were happening, right? Is online shopping. I mean, all baby boomers, they were like kind of more more difficult to adjust to uh, online shopping, they all of a sudden had to learn because they need to buy food, they need to buy um, and stay home, otherwise they run the risk of, of getting COVID. So adoption will move very, very fast there. So what, how does that impact you to restate? Well, a lot of distribution centers and things like that, that was happening before, but with COVID, it just accelerated X-folds, right? Office buildings, as I mentioned to you, less and less people going to the office, more and more people working from home. On the residential rental that we like, the one that we we pay special attention, this is the notion of people wanting to have more space, right? They don't want necessarily living in those like very high dense locations such as I mean, New York City and and so on and so forth, or even downtown versus suburbs. And we always, for our stabilized properties, we always wanted to be more in the suburbs. And that has benefited uh, significantly because of COVID, right? I mean, what's happening already before, this migration from high-paying cities, high tax, state tax, city tax, and so on, they're migrating down to bigger cities and lower tax, lower cost of living. That was happening before. I think COVID and the pandemic just uh, accelerated that trend. So I think those are very, very important trends that we are paying attention to. Uh, luckily, it has benefited uh, our, our strategy, but those things change, no? Eventually, people will, m- will move back to cities. I, I don't know. I mean, but we, we, it's always important to keep a tune of all, these, all those trends. What's a parting piece of advice that you have for our audience? Meaning the ones that are thinking in terms of what to invest? No, 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 it's general, general. I mean, based on the lessons and you've learned or picked up over your career, 20 years working at a, in, in investments, having worked for many years at City, and now start, having started your own company, what's a, a parting piece of advice, the most important, single most important one that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah, good question. I would say... During downturn moments, and we live at least a couple or three of those, right? It drives a lot of uncertainty across the board, right? And uncertainty drives people to freeze when it comes to making decisions or buying a house, making an investment. And for us in the business that we are in, we like those moments, we like those moments because when you do your homework and you're very comfortable with the sectors and the decisions, uh, capital allocations decisions you're making, you have less competition. And, and that adjusts price, right? Excessive liquidity, push price high, uh, lack of liquidity, 
push price lower. I'm not saying the price that we're buying are lower, much lower relative to before, because this sector remains relatively solid, but certainly there's a lot less uh, institutional capital or transactions happening. So my advice is act now, do your homework and act now, because six months, one year from now, um, the market will be extremely active, extremely hot because of the reasons that I mentioned before. Uh, all these investors there are in the sideline because they, they're uncertain. They're, they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if the vaccine is the solution. Guess what? They're not making any investment decisions. And, and we have a few of those. We have many of those that we go, we educate and so on, and we explain the reasons and so on. Some we convert, some they still decide to stay and not do anything. So I'm not saying that we're pushing everybody making a decision, but I'm, what I'm saying is that empirically, investments that have been made, private investments made during a downturn and one year after the downturn has performed higher and better than than other vintages. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That parting piece of advice, extremely helpful. And like like you said, we don't live through a lot of these kinds of moments when you put it into perspective. So we're better off capitalizing whenever we do find ourselves in those situations. That's Ricardo, right. thank you very much for your time here today and for all your lessons shared and, and advice and insights into AIC Capital and what makes you the company that you are. What is the, the best way to reach you for anybody who's interested in learning more, potentially investing with you or interested in, in one of the different services that you provide or learning more about the platform? Actually, it's a good question because we tend to be very uh, low key. Our clients are existing clients that reach out to us or, or word of mouth. We, we, we're not this, this type of group. Our marketing activities are, are very, very, very weak, if not say don't exist. So what, the only thing we have, we have a LinkedIn page uh, ASC Capital uh, LLC, but we're, we're very uh, non active there. But you can reach out to us or follow us there, and also via email ricardo.otouti at aic-capital.com. We can put those notes there in your podcast notes. But I think those are the two ways. Perfect, perfect. Well, Ricardo, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I've learned a tremendous amount and glad that we were able to do this. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. Thank you.